The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. It is so good to be back after a little bit of time away and to see you all. And that also means that this is the earliest I've been awake in three weeks, so (laughs) bear with me. I said to a parent in the congregation earlier, this is one of the perks of not having kids. So if you have been around Wellsprings for very long at all, you know that every single summer we do the same message series. We call it Spirit Flicks, and each week we find the meaning, the deeper meaning in a different story that we watch on our screens, whether it's a movie or a TV show. And if you have been around here long enough to get to know me at all, you know that if any halfway decent documentaries have come out in the previous year, I will be talking about them when I get up here. So I was very excited to see that this film came out this past year. Knock Down the House. How many of you have had a chance to watch it? It's on Netflix, a couple of you. So it is a documentary that tracks four women who all ran for Congress as part of the big Democratic Party push in the midterm elections last year in 2018. On the top left there is Paula Jean Swearingen. She is from West Virginia. Next to her, Amy Valela. Oh, no, I'm sorry, below her, Amy Valela, who ran from the district that includes Las Vegas in Nevada. But next to Amy is Cori Bush, who ran in the district that includes Ferguson in Missouri, where Michael Brown was killed. And on the top right, who is that? Does anyone know who that woman is? Anybody, shout it out. AOC is how she's come to be known, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is now the congresswoman from the district that includes Queens and the Bronx in New York. She needs no introduction these days, right? Actually, whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC, she needs no introduction. And that actually illustrates a point from one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and sort of a central point I think it's making all along. A point about why we put ourselves out there on the line. Why we risk and hope for anything that is beyond what seems possible, or beyond what we know. Early in the film, we are greeted with a montage of the earliest days of gearing up for each of these women's campaigns. And in that montage, we see just a few minutes of what might very generously be called a fundraising party. Picture a cramped living room somewhere in Queens, maybe five or six people on couches, on folding chairs, on the floor, huddled around a coffee table in what's probably a 250-square-foot efficiency apartment. And these potential early supporters are grilling a 28-year-old Alexandria, 28-year-old Alexandria is a BU economics grad with just a little bit of nonprofit experience, currently tending bar at a taqueria. And they're asking her, why in the hell do you think you have any chance of being elected to the United States Congress? And eventually, after a few of those kinds of questions back and forth, a young man at the party says to her, well, fine, okay, so let's just allow that somehow it's possible for you to win. Why then, he says, would we want to give up all this power we currently have in Congress for you, 
How are we going to deal with that loss of power for our district? Now, he's referring, of course, to the incumbent representative for their district, a man who'd served for 10 consecutive terms and was at that time the fourth-ranking Democrat in the House. So I want to ask you all a question. Does anyone here know that man's name? Don't, don't say it if you do. Just raise your hand. Does anyone actually know his name? You remember. Okay, one. And now just as a point of reference, how many of you knew her name? Raise your hand. So perhaps you see my point. (laughs) Joe Crowley is the man that she replaced in Congress, and the guest at that party wasn't necessarily wrong about the kind of power he held, the kind of institutional power. But apparently this woman whose name we all know and whose picture we all recognize has a different kind of power. What they were giving up and what they were gaining was not so clear as he thought. That little exchange, that moment, was such a solid illustration, I thought, of the way that we all sometimes approach a risk. Right? We can discount so completely the possibility of something unimaginable or extraordinary happening. We can cut that off at the knees because we assume, for good reason, but we tend to assume that the world will continue to work in the ways it always has. We tend to assume that we know everything about the way the world has worked and that it will continue to be that way. Maybe a year ago, a member of our congregation sent uh, this article right here to Reverend Ken and I. I don't expect that many of you have read this one. It was actually Kathy Burkow who sent it to us. She's delivering her first message as one of our lay preachers next Sunday. It was an introduction to an idea that I had never heard of before, an idea called Hope Punk. Hope Punk, yeah. I was not up on this, but apparently it is the latest trend in storytelling and fiction and television. It is a contrast to something that maybe some of you have heard of that's been around for a while called grimdark. And if you haven't heard that word, you've certainly seen the products of it. In grimdark stories, which have been very popular in the past 10 years or so, there's this idea that people want fantasy worlds to be grimmer and darker because the author says we want it to reflect reality. We want it to help us process our fears about the harsh, real troubles in this world. So maybe think of Game of Thrones. Pretty dark, pretty grim. Breaking Bad. Black Mirror. These are all examples of grim, dark storytelling. And we are still telling a lot of those stories now. This author says maybe now it's starting to reflect reality a little too much. And so this new thing is hope punk. In a hope punk story, they say kindness and softness doesn't equal weakness. In a world of brutal cynicism and nihilism, a hope punk story recognizes that being kind can be a political act, that it can be an act of rebellion. These stories are filled with what the author calls weaponized optimism. It's Sam helping Frodo in Lord of the Rings. It's Ron and Hermione running away with Harry to try to bring down Voldemort. 
It's also the protagonist of The Handmaid's Tale, trapped in a nightmare America, but refusing to give up on herself or on her daughter. The concept of hope punk doesn't exclude difficult realities or even horrifying realities, but rather it puts front and center the characters who continue to fight on, who believe in the possibility of something better. Don't let the bastards grind you down, she says, is one of the core tenets of Hope Punk. And it's funny, Kathy sent us this article uh, a long time ago, before this movie came out, certainly before I decided to preach about it, but the first thing I said back to her in response to it was, oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is political Hope Punk. She is, to me at least. And to me, it's not necessarily about her ideology or her politics. I think it's a certain kind of persistence, actually, that we see from all of the candidates that are followed in this film. It's the way that they all embody drawing on bravery, sticking it out, and they all draw on our sense of connectedness to do so, with absolutely no victory promised to them. There's a phrase that I've heard a lot recently in this political cycle, which began already long ago for the next election in 2020 for president. As the candidates who are running begin to introduce themselves to us all, I hear this phrase a lot, happy warrior. Have any of you heard that? Some of the commentators love to use it. It's usually used in reference to this guy on the right here. There's Cory Booker. Cory Booker just living his best life on the debate stage, right? Having a time of his life. Julian Castro, who he's talking to, he can be a pretty happy warrior himself, but the commentators love to use this phrase to describe Cory Booker. It's a term that's been used in politics for a few decades, actually. But it comes from a much older source, from a piece of writing from 1806 by the poet... William Wordsworth, a 200-year-old poem called The Character of the Happy Warrior. It's very long. I won't read it all. But it's worth reading. I was surprised how fresh it felt to me, particularly in light of some of the things we have been talking about here at Wellsprings, what Ken preached about when he was up here two weeks ago. The character of the happy warrior reads like such a lovely description of a healthy and warm and strong masculinity. It is a description, really, of strong character for any person. And again, odd, considering it's 200 years old, but it's a very hope-punk kind of poem. This man who Wordsworth describes the subject of the poem does not live in an easy time. He is at war. But the image that's painted of him is all about resisting the temptation to give in to evil. Resisting the temptation to fight evil with further evil. Urging us instead to look for ways that we can build on kindness. That we can build on good and fight back from that foundation. It's very long, but I will read you just a little excerpt. His soul's feeling rendered more compassionate because 
occasions rise so often that demand such sacrifice. He is more skillful in self-knowledge as more he is exposed to suffering and distress. Thence also more alive to tenderness. I think this is one of the hardest paradoxes, one of the most difficult lines of tension that we all walk. And I'm sad to say, I think it never goes away. It's a lifelong condition. Our vulnerability to suffering and distress, our tenderness in the face of it. It requires great risk to face up to those difficult things, and it doesn't always lead to victory. But it is also where life and creativity and possibility lies, and where so much that is new is born. At one point in this film, before her win, Alexandria says, I am just so scared of the cynicism that I know can come from people really believing in something and then it not working out. We all walk that line in each moment when we try to decide what is safe and what is worth it, how much disappointment we can handle in the risks in our lives. We face different kinds of choices personally in our families, in our careers, in our personal growth about what is worth risking. And we look at the reality around us, and that is why we just choose differently sometimes. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't take these big risks. We all know so many stories of losses, and we all know so many stories of wins. We have them both just here in today's film, losses and wins, devastating losses, and miraculous wins. So what do we do with that? This February, a Jesuit priest, Father Jim McDermott, he actually wrote a feature for America Magazine on the spiritual currents running through this hope punk idea. Yeah, Jim McDermott, much cooler and more up on pop culture than I am, apparently. At one time in the past, he says, it was actually a requirement of Catholic priests to try to make their congregations laugh on Easter Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, to try to make their congregations laugh so hard the sound would ring from the rafters, he said. Their joy on Easter was supposed to be this experience of just how completely Christ had rendered fear and despair absurd. And he says, during my own first Easter as a priest, a just baptized baby peed all over me before a congregation of 1,500 people. And you know what? Laughter echoed from the rafters. (laughs) What was more surprising, he said, in the midst of that unexpected and for me really gross, he said, moment, we really did feel like a community united in joy and possibility. That, he says, is the point and the opportunity of hope punk. It's acting not with certainty, but with faith 
that the spirit does not follow the rules we set down. Grace rebels, he says. God thrives not in some impossible perfect sanctity, but in the mess and the reality of our humanity. The reality, he says, of our church or our community or our world letting us down, we can choose to not see it as a call to resignation, but rather to empowerment. The future is about ordinary people taking up our own crosses together, fighting for a world that's more like the kingdom of God and the beloved community fighting for a world that is spontaneous and welcoming and celebratory and always trying to love and love and love. I heard one other story like that recently about another great risk taken. It's a story that you might have heard if you follow along with podcasts. It's been a pretty popular one this past year. Have any of you listened to the White Lies podcast on NPR? I recommend it. It's part of that true crime thing that's very popular now after Criminal, which was another big podcast that came out. But this one has a few other shades to it that make it particularly interesting maybe for you and I in this room. In seven parts, it tells the story that begins with the murder of this man on the left, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Jimmy Lee Jackson was murdered by a police officer in Marion, Alabama, in 1965 during a peaceful voting rights march. And his murder inspired the later, much more well-known marches from Selma to Montgomery that year. And the podcast also tells the story of this man on the right, also named Jim, Jim Reeb. Jim Reeb was a Unitarian minister who came to Selma to support those marches and then was himself murdered by a group of angry white men who saw Jim and two of his colleagues leaving dinner one night at a restaurant in Selma and guessed correctly that they had traveled from up north to support the local black activists in the civil rights movement. Both of these men were killed. And both of their photos are up here because I always try to remember that many of us have access to how it feels to be Jimmy Lee. For some of us, just living is taking a risk. For some of us, we don't get to choose that risk. I know that I have access to that feeling when I think about what it means to be a woman in certain circumstances, deciding to travel alone, to live alone, to walk home late at night. These aren't really risks I'm trying to take. They're just me trying to live my life while at some level in a state of constant risk because of who I am. In that way, I can relate. And many of us have access to that feeling, whether it's because of our gender or because we are people of color or because our sexuality or our gender expression doesn't match a so-called norm. But many of us also have access to how it feels to be Jim, how it feels to choose risk when we didn't need to. 
having the privilege to make that choice. It's pretty hard for me in particular to ignore how it feels to be Jim because listening to this podcast, I realized how much I have in common with him, and I don't just mean the glasses, and how much I liked him. I honestly finished the last episode of that podcast and started thinking about whether Reeb would make a good name for a baby someday. That's how much I like Jim Reeb. Not kidding. So let me tell you a little bit about him. The last episode of this podcast begins with audio from his last ever sermon delivered at All Souls Church in Washington, D.C., where he worked in 1964. All Souls Church, D.C. is my home church where I became a Unitarian. Jim was freaking awesome. (laughs) On the podcast, they read a letter that he wrote a few months later to a friend. He left All Souls Church that summer, and he was looking for a new job. Even though his role at All Souls was really a plum position in the denomination, it was well-paid, it was well-regarded, he was frustrated with the emphasis in most of our established churches on comfort and status. In the letter, he says, the UUA Department of Ministry assures me that they will get my name on lists of desirable churches. If there's anything I'm not interested in, it is joining the list of those looking for desirable churches. What the hell is a desirable church? I mean, here was the crux of the matter with our values, our beliefs, and what we see going on in the world around us today, are we serious about what kind of religious community we are seeking to nurture? This is why I love Jim Reeb. Soon after that, Jim started a new job with the American Friends Service Committee in Boston. And the next spring, he saw the news of Bloody Sunday, the awful, violent attacks on civil rights protesters crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. And so along with two of his friends who were also UU ministers, he decided to respond to the calls for clergy to come from all over the country to show their support and join the protesters in Alabama. And on a cool March evening in 1965, he and his friends left a restaurant the same night they had arrived in Selma. And on the road home, they were ambushed and beaten by a group of white supremacists. And Jim was beaten so badly that he died. The most harrowing thing about this story for me was listening to them interview one of Jim's friends who was there that night, Clark Olson. As he narrated what it was like to try to get Jim some help in the hours after the attack, to sit by Jim's side on the long ambulance ride and hold his hand as he died. It was impossible for me as a minister, as a UU minister, as Clark Olson's colleague. I've met Clark Olson. It was impossible listening to that story to not imagine what it would be like to make that choice today to respond to a call to come to the border or a detention center or a white supremacist rally maybe here in our own state and to end up in an ambulance with one of the colleagues that I love, with Elizabeth or Greg or Abby or Ken 
holding their hand. That risk and that choice had never felt so real to me as it did listening to Clark talk about his friend. And Jim was not a warrior. He didn't train for this. He wasn't even really a seasoned activist. He wasn't beaten while protesting. He was walking home from dinner. He was there to show his support. He was simply being who he was. After his move to Boston the previous fall, Jim wrote in another letter to his friend, the children are in school and in general happy. John wanted to help integrate his class. Some gal in Washington wanted to know if I really wanted my children to go to school with Negroes. And I said, yes, of course. All children are lucky who integrate schools. Maria is fine busy getting the house in order. I am faced every day to stretch my mind. There are new problems, new ideas, new experiences to deal with. I have seized the bull by the horns. I am doing what seems important and let the damned torpedoes come. When his friend reads that letter, the host of the podcast can't help himself. He says, wow, that's something else. And it goes on with more details about their home and their family. And suddenly someone whose face I knew from a plaque in the sanctuary at All Souls, whose name is in history books, I understood him as a lot like you and me, as just a stand-up dude, a guy like a lot of people I know, doing his level best to love and love and love. We ask ourselves sometimes, what would I do or what would I give up? And we think that we can carefully weigh all the pros and cons, but we don't always know the risk that we are taking. Some of us have never been able to choose. And sometimes despite all of our best efforts, our reasoning, our hedging our bets, we still don't get to choose. We don't always have all the information. And we don't always know everything about how the world works, whether for ill or for good. And so perhaps instead of hedging our bets until we are all the way fenced in, we can practice staying open, despite our stories walking that line one foot in front of the other, one choice at a time. Remembering that even if the big picture seems really overwhelming, we always have a little bit of power of choice in this moment and in the next one. We have power in those moments to follow perhaps the leading of the spirit whose other name is love, who does not follow the rules we set down. Earlier this year, Cori Bush announced she was running for Congress again. Ten days ago, Paula Jean Swearingen announced that she was too. Amen. And may you all live in blessing. I invite you to pray with me.
God of the fullness of what's possible. Spirit, whose other name is love. A love that is beyond our comprehension, that is made holy by being greater than we can imagine. By meeting us in difficult places, by showing us grace when we think all is lost. I pray that we all find moments to remember to return to that call. That even if we can't do it in every moment, and who of us could, that we make the choice sometimes to turn towards that spirit. To open ourselves up to what may be, if love might win. For these prayers that I have spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.